0: So by the time you get around to taking in this message, the Christmas festivities will be well behind you. And you'll be looking into the eyes of a new year. Question. Just exactly what do you plan to do with it? The first four of the Ten Commandments are directed towards God. The rest have to do with how we relate to one another. This tells us what a tremendous challenge maturity in our relationships are with one another and how important this is to God. Difficulties in the church always involve people. Our relationship is first towards God then towards man. Love is the key that will open the door to relational maturity, to unity, and true fellowship with one another. In most marriages the unsolvable problems are the result of being relationally immature. They are the result of one or other partner being selfish, demanding, dominating, manipulating and loads of other things besides. Wives, the Bible says, be good to your husbands and responsible, responsive to their needs husband your wife Peter says is a fellow heir in your inheritance if you injure her you've injured your inheritance where do I find that 1 Peter 3 4 to 7 in the message be good wives to your husbands responsive to their needs there are husbands who indifferent as they are to any words about God will be captivated by your life of holy beauty What matters is not your outer appearance, the styling of your hair, the jewellery you wear, the cut of your clothes, but your inner disposition. Cultivate inner beauty, the gentle, gracious kind that God delights in. The holy women of old were beautiful before God in that way, and were good, loyal wives to their husbands. Sarah for instance, taking care of Abraham, would address him as my dear husband. You'll be true daughters of Sarah if you do the same, unanxious and unintimidated. Same goes for you husbands. Be good husbands to your wives. Honour them, delight in them. As women, they lack some of your advantages, but in the new life of God's grace, you're equals. Treat your wives, then, as equals, so your prayers don't run aground. The thing which obviously suffers here, gentlemen, is that your prayers will go unanswered if you don't look after your wife properly. The love of which I speak is not soft love, it's the agape of God, the kind of love that provokes you to love and good works. It won't let you off the hook when you need to be nailed. It will pursue you for your own good because to be sympathetic to you would keep you in a baby state in immaturity. I find it quite remarkable that such is the immature state of the church in large proportion that although the Apostle Paul could speak clearly about these things we find ourselves having to pussyfoot around such teachings in order that no one will be offended. Paul puts it this way in his letter to the Corinthians, and really he's not pulling any punches. 1 Corinthians 3, 1-15 in the New American Standard Bible And I, brethren could not speak to you as spiritual men, but as men of the flesh, as to infants in Christ. I gave you milk to drink, not solid food, for you were not able to receive it. Indeed, even now you're not yet able, for you're still fleshly. For since there is jealousy and strife among you are you not fleshly and are you not walking like mere men? For when one says I'm of Paul and another I'm of Apollos are you not mere men? What is Apollos and who is Paul? Servants through whom you believed even as the Lord gave opportunity to each one. I planted, Apollos watered but God was causing the growth. So then Neither the one who plants nor the one who waters is anything but God who causes the growth. Now he who plants and he who waters are one, but each one will receive his own reward according to his own labor. For we are God's fellow workers, you are God's field, God's building. According to the grace of God which was given me, like a wise master builder, I laid the foundation and another is building on it. But each man must be careful how he builds on it. For no man can lay a foundation other than the one which is laid, which is Christ Jesus. Now, if any man builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each man's work will become evident, for the day will show it because it is to be revealed with fire. And the fire itself will test the quality of each man's work. If any man's work which he has done, which he has built on remains, he will receive a reward. If any man's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, but he himself will be saved, yet as through fire. Whether we like it or not, beloved, God will reward us, and he speaks much about these rewards, and also about what causes us to lose them, our inheritance. So a reminder of of what Francis said when he defined the agape of God. What do I mean by love? Firstly I do not mean tough love, I mean gentle, affectionate, sensitive, open, persistent love. God will be tough when he needs to be, and we will be firm when he tells us to be. But beneath our firmness must be an underground river of love, waiting to spring into action. By love I mean a compassion that is empowered by faith and prayer to see God's best come forth in the people I love. When I have love for someone I have predetermined that I'm going to stand with them regardless of what they're going through. I am committed. So for me I'll be gentle with you but firm when he tells me because the message is as strong as it needs to be. And underneath this strength and firmness, to which incidentally you may or may not react, is a love for you which seeks the very best for you. Love is the answer to splits and divisions in the church. Love is the key to true unity in the church. Love is the cost. Love remains. It never fails. Love never gives up. It will always think the best of you. Everything else will pass away. But love is what holds the universe together. The greatest of these is love. There's coming a restoration of all things. Somewhere along the line, beloved, the church has lost her way. Presence has given way to pomp spectacle and display. Everybody wants to be somebody. Servanthood has given way to being served and the idea of being a slave to Jesus is considered passe. The world is in the church and we don't recognize it. So the problem is not getting the church out of the world but the world out of the church. Inside every one of us is a giant whose name is me, myself and I. We are ambitious to be something, do something, prove something. We are insecure in our identity, security and belonging. So to suggest that God might require us to be a servant is anathema. Someone said to us recently, I don't mind being called a servant, Lord, just so long as you don't treat me like one. It made us laugh, but isn't that the truth? Unless you have a right view of yourself, your fallen drive will not have been harnessed to the will of God, or submitted to the will of God. And damage will consistently be done to you and the body of Christ, and people will leave fellowships and churches and continue to do so. It's basic stuff. You must believe what he says about you. You must believe where he has placed you, in Christ. You are the beloved of God on whom his favour rests. Then you will start living it, liking it and loving like it. Your will will be harnessed and surrendered daily to the love and the will of God. This is not as onerous as it sounds. If you love me, Jesus said, you'll keep my commandments. And this is my commandment, that you love one another. This is a test command. I'm asking you to do this. I wonder if you will. John thirteen thirty four. I give you a new commandment, that you should love one another, just as I've loved you. So you too should love one another. Okay, Lord, I love you. It's people I have the problem with. John fourteen fifteen amplified, But if you really love me, you will keep, obey my commands. So we need to get back to basics, maturity in relationships, loving one another with the love that Christ has for us. We cannot love our neighbour, we cannot affect or influence the society around us until this is flesh upon us until this really becomes our life. The first four of the Ten Commandments are directed towards God, but the remaining six have to do with how we relate to one another. This tells us what a tremendous challenge relational maturity is and how important it is to God. Unsolvable problems in the church always, but always, involve people. It's not about the carpet on the floor. We're all familiar with John fifteen one to 8 in the message. I am the real vine, and my father is the farmer. He cuts off every branch in me that doesn't bear grapes, and every branch that is grape-bearing he prunes it back so it will bear even more. You're already pruned back by the message I've spoken. Live in me, make your home in me, just as I do in you. In the same way that a branch can't bear grapes by itself but only by being joined to the vine you can't bear fruit unless you're joined with me. I'm the vine, you're the branches when you're joined with me and I with you the relation, intimate and organic the harvest is sure, it's sure to be abundant. Separated you can't produce a thing. Anyone who separates from me is dead wood gathered up and thrown on the bonfire. But if you make yourself at home with me, and my words are at home in you, you can be sure that whatever you ask will be listened to and acted upon. This is how my Father shows who He is when you produce grapes, when you mature as my disciples. He's looking for fruit, which will be produced as we mature. You can have much information and teaching, you can grow fat but never mature because that teaching has never become flesh upon you. It's not been worked in and worked out in your own personal experience. Thus we can see that believers are 30 or 40 years are all leaf, no fruit, but they would protest that they are mature, not so. There's a very important balance between growing up and being mature especially relationally. The husbandman, the farmer, comes looking for fruit. He's looking under the leaves to see what fruit he can find. For many years we've understood that John 15 is speaking only about our abiding in the vine which is Jesus and this is true. But beloved there are branches other than you. We can all live with a shotgun to keep people away and a Bible under our arm. I love God, but I can't stand people. Jesus says in John ten sixteen, I have other sheep which are not of this fold. I must bring them also, and they will hear my voice, and they will become one flock with one shepherd. One flock, one shepherd, one bride, one bridegroom. God sees us as one soul. Ever thought of that? The Lord expects us to include, embrace, and learn properly to relate to other people in the body of Christ. Back to basics. Draw a circle right now around the people who have hurt and offended you. Those to whom you don't speak in the church family. Those who have wounded you and you haven't forgiven. And include them in your love as an act of your will you may be surprised at the outcome if you've got real problems and you know you have I suggest you turn the CD off at this point and do just that ask the Lord to show you the people with whom you are still offended and then deliberately draw a circle and include them principle God is inclusive not exclusive. So if you're out with them, you're out with Him. Ephesians 4 3 to 5 and 11 and 12. Being diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There's one body and one spirit just as you were also called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism. And he gave some as apostles and some as prophets and some as evangelists and some as pastors and teachers for the equipping of the saints for the work of the service to the building up of the body of Christ. So far, so good. Then Paul gets over to verse 25 and here we go into what I call relational difficulties. So for Ephesians four twenty-five to 29, we're switching to the message. What this adds up to then is this. No more lies, no more pretense. Tell your neighbour the truth. In Christ's body, we're all connected to each other after all. When you lie to others, you end up lying to yourself. Go ahead and be angry. You do well to be angry, but don't use your anger as fuel for revenge. And don't stay angry. Don't go to bed angry. Don't give the devil that kind of foothold in your life. Did you used to make ends meet by stealing? Well, don't do it any more. Get an honest job so that you can help others who can't work. Watch the way you talk. Let nothing foul or dirty come out of your mouth. Say only what helps. Each word a gift. If you have children, you know how cruel they can be to each other. The majority of Christians are like children. They have little or no compunction in being cruel and malicious to one another. They backbite, speak against one another, gang up on one another, ostracise each other and they curse one another with their thoughts and their words, their tongues. James says in James uh, 5 and 6 Sorry, in the message, takes only a spark, remember, to set off a forest fire. A careless or wrongly placed word out of your mouth can do that. By our speech we can ruin the world, turn harmony to chaos, throw mud on a reputation, send the whole world up in smoke and go up in smoke with it. Smoke right from the pit of hell. There are things, beloved, that are within the church right now that she finds acceptable but the Lord does not. He doesn't condemn but he gently urges us to go back to our roots of love, holiness, obedience and purity to which we're called. If we walk with compromise our feet will get very muddy. If we turn a blind eye long enough we will no longer be able to see. If we turn a deaf ear long enough we will cease to be able to hear. If we persist in seeing things with our natural eye we will lose the ability to perceive with our spiritual eye. We are a heart with both eyes and ears. We need to both see and hear spiritually. It's all about that walk of centeredness, of focus, intimacy, and abiding. Everything to be discussed with Him in the company of the Father and the Blessed Holy Spirit who is your personal trainer. You are part of the community of heaven. Enjoy the relationship. When God placed Adam and Eve in the garden He gave them just one command to test them. Don't eat of that tree there in the middle of the garden. Just one command but it was a test. He's given us one command and it's a test. Love one another as I have loved you. Is he cautioning you not to touch or get involved in something right now? Is he giving you a test command? Is he asking you to lay something down? He may not give you a reason why, yours is simply to obey. If he is, how long are you going to play around? Luke 19 10 to 24 the message and it's the story about investment. While he had their attention and because they were getting close to Jerusalem by this time and expectation was building that God's kingdom would appear any minute he told this story. There was once a man descended from a royal house who needed to make a long trip back to headquarters to get authorization for his rule and then return. But first he called ten servants together and gave them each a sum of money and instructed them, operate with this until I return. But the citizens there hated him. So they sent a commission with a signed petition to oppose his rule. We don't want this man to rule us. When he came back, bringing the authorization of his rule, he called those ten servants to whom he'd given the money to find out how they'd done. The first said, Master, I doubled your money. He said, Good servant, great work. Because you've been trustworthy in this small job, I'm making you governor over ten towns. The second said, Master, I've made 50% profit on your money. He said, Putting you in charge of five. The next servant said, Master, here's your money safe and sound. I kept it hidden in the cellar. To tell you the truth, I was a little afraid. I know you have high standards and hate sloppiness and don't suffer fools gladly. He said, you're right. I don't suffer fools gladly, and you've acted the fool. Why didn't you at least invest the money in securities so I'd have gotten a little interest on it? Then he said to those standing there, take the money from him and give it to the servant who doubled my stake. That doesn't seem too fair to us, does it? The one who did the best gets the other bit as well. The parallel and the parable here is what we do and are here on this earth determines both our inheritance in this life and our eternal rewards. You can't get away from it sowing and reaping and god wants to give you a reward that is his stated desire he rewards those who diligently seek him hebrews 11:6 but without faith it's impossible to please him for the he that comes to god must believe that he is and that he is a rewarder of them that diligently seek him matthew 6:33 amplified but seek aim after and strive at first of all his kingdom and his righteousness, his way of doing and being right. And then all these things taken together will be given to you besides. Not your way of doing and being right. And we're in the process of receiving the kingdom. Hebrews twelve twenty-eight. Let us therefore, receiving a kingdom that is firm and stable and cannot be shaken, Offer to God pleasing service and acceptable worship with modesty and pious care and godly fear and awe. So there we have the criteria for receiving the kingdom pleasing service, acceptable worship, pious care, godly fear and awe. It's not rocket science, it's all there. Micah 6 8 in the NIV. He's shown you, O mortal, what's good. And what does the Lord require of you? To act justly, love mercy and walk humbly with your God. Do that and you'll do well. To walk humbly with God means the fear of the Lord, which is the beginning of wisdom, must become yours. If you know that you don't have a reverent respect and awe of Almighty God, ask the holy spirit to impart it to you he will be very happy to do so he will teach you the proper fear of the lord which is the beginning just the beginning of wisdom greek philosophers and ancients you know believe that someday there would come a golden age where mankind would be able to live together in true agape paul luke and other New Testament writers believe that we could have true love and fellowship with one another now. For years we as a body of people, as a church, have put forth the message come to Jesus if you are sad and lonely and find a friend. The problem with this is that in finding Jesus they also find us. People and people who are still so much like the world they can't see the difference and as a consequence they still get hurt, they still get rejected and still get spoken evil of. Again, we are enrolled in God's school and in this class He wants to teach us to grow up relationally to the place where we love one another with the same love that He loves us. and We can't ignore His desire any longer and stay in fellowship with him. I'm in fellowship with God when I'm out with Charlie. Beloved, you delude yourself. If you're out with anyone, you're out with God. I'm alright with God, it's people I can't handle. It's got to go beloved, it has got to go. That is the challenge before us. Relational maturity. Thanks be to God, we are only responsible for ourselves, not the other fellow. So that makes it somewhat easier, doesn't it? I'm not responsible for your reactions or responses and you're not responsible for mine. Yahoo! So far, so good. Sometimes, not defending ourselves comes to the point of pain. We really do want to open our mouth and explain and defend ourselves and speak up but it's at that point that we need to do two things keep our mouths shut and wait for compassion and mercy to rise. When it does the compassion, mercy, wisdom, goodness and love of God will come forth from us The same stream cannot bring forth bitter and sweet water, James says. We just have to keep it in mind that God is our vindicator and allow ourselves and our motives to be misunderstood. It will happen. You will be misunderstood. Swallow the pill. We are training ourselves to respond to God in all circumstances and like everything else it's a process step by step. People can only kill in you beloved the things that need killing they are there as your grace growers so you let them grow the grace that is appropriate kindness in the face of unkindness patience in the place of impatience on and on it goes The devil is there to grow you spiritually. People are there to grow you in the fruit of the spirit, the life of Christ manifested in you and through you. So if your flesh rises, it's a sure sign you need killing in that area. Death speaks to death, flesh speaks to flesh, nasty speaks to nasty. We can all retaliate, no skill in that. It's the old nature. But if there isn't anything nasty in you, you don't receive it as nasty and you don't retaliate. If something reacts inside you, likely it was your flesh that attracted the observation in the first place. Check it out. And begin to become aware of what is happening inside you. The kingdom of God is within you. Like two cats in a bag. The flesh cries out to be killed by the Spirit and the Holy Spirit will go straight for the throat of your carnality. You know that the flesh and the Spirit are at enmity like two cats in a bag. Be aware, when you call out for more of the Holy Spirit, He will go straight for your flesh and He won't apologise. You're asking Him to kill you and do it quickly. Correct me ruthlessly and deal with me severely. Make it quick please. People can only kill in you the things that need killing, beloved. So stop complaining and die quietly. When you fail to bless those who persecute you or criticise you, you're establishing whether you are free or still need some attention in that area. It's so easy to see. A corpse can't be killed, it's already dead. So if nothing needs killing, nothing can harm you. If you're dead, it can't you can be kind merciful and gracious under criticism or injustice or misunderstanding whatever it won't have any effect grace and mercy will be the response the church at philippi much like the church today had a basic problem each one was going their own way they'd lost their unity and and fellowship and some had even begun to preach Christ from envy and strife philippians 115 Paul said that these Christians were enemies of the cross of Christ, Philippians 3.18. They wanted to walk their own way, more and more. And two of them had problems. And Paul highlights these, and they are between two women, Euodia and Syntyche, whom he urges to live in harmony in the Lord. Certain behaviours here were keeping them from walking in fellowship with one another. We can jokingly call these two odious and so touchy. One was a critical person, disapproving, high-minded, religious and difficult to please. The other was easily offended and upset. The type that everyone else in the group had to walk carefully around because she was so easily upset. So when these two got together, it was a recipe for disaster and accident just waiting to happen, and sure enough it did. And Paul has to send from imprisonment, imploring them to make up their differences for the sake of unity in the church. Harmony in the Lord. When you hear or see in the scriptures the words, in the Lord, it's always behavioral. Check it out, have a look. I urge you in the Lord. It's behavioural. These types of people tend to try to straighten everyone else out when they are the problem. They have strong views on how people should be behaving and what they should be saying. It's the moat and the beam. They can always see what's in your eye but not see what's in their own. And that uh, brings to mind someone who phoned me some years ago now, uh, saying that she could see someone pushing frogs into my mouth, trying to make me say things God wasn't giving me to say. It was a really interesting conversation because she was the person who was pushing in the frogs. She was trying to make me say something that God was not telling me to say. And I knew it. So don't push frogs into people's mouths. eh? We must begin to take responsibility for fixing ourselves and stop worrying about getting everyone else straightened out. That is the responsibility of the Holy Spirit. The challenge for us beloved is to stop being part of the problem and deliberately begin to be part of the answer. We cannot continue telling people that Jesus will give you peace and live on tranquilizers ourselves. Nor can we say that we know the Prince of Peace and experience broken relationships with everyone around us. It's like setting our stall out and when someone walks through the door looking for something, we say, oh, sorry, out of stock. The real thing thing will cost us. God is asking that we come into a relationship and fellowship with him and with each other where agape is so natural we can reach out to those outside who really need to experience the love and compassion of Jesus and when we bring them in they find the whole place is filled with the love and compassion of Jesus we desperately need to ask God for this even if it wrecks our carefully constructed lifestyle. Philippians 2, 1-8 in the message is headed up. He took the status of a slave. If you've gotten anything at all out of following Christ, if his love has made any difference in your life, if being in a community of the Spirit means anything to you, if you have a heart, if you care, then do me a favour, agree with each other, love each other, be deep-spirited friends, don't push your way to the front, don't sweet-talk your way to the top, put yourself aside and help others get ahead, don't be obsessed with getting your own advantage, forget yourselves long enough to lend a helping hand. Think of yourselves the way Christ Jesus thought of himself, He had equal status with God, but didn't think so much of himself that he had to cling to the advantages of that status no matter what. Not at all. When the time came, he set aside the privileges of deity and took on the status of a slave, became human. Having become human, he stayed human. It was an incredibly humbling process. He didn't claim special privileges. Instead he lived a selfless, obedient life and then died a selfless, obedient death. The worst kind of death at that, a crucifixion. If you're wise, you'll be reviewing what the past year has held, what you've learned, what you could have done differently. Retrospective revelation. You'll be having a ah moment in retrospect. Review must become a habit if we are to discover what our tests and trials are meant to produce. Perhaps you'll also be thinking about making some quality decisions to define who you are, who you're planning to become in the year 2011 and I'm not talking about New Year resolutions, please hear me on this. I'm talking about you covenanting with God over issues in your life to allow him to change and refine you. You may have prophetic words which have been spoken over you or given to you by the Holy Spirit. Dust them off beloved, ask the Lord just where you are with them and make decisions that will bring you into the fullness of these prophecies. You don't want to be just 30% fulfilled, not just 60% fulfilled but a 100% fulfilment on those prophetic words. We are in perilous times. The church is the hope not only of the nation but of the world. Jesus is the light of the world and we are his ambassadors and we are clothed with him. Thinking about ambassadors then how do you personally represent the kingdom to which you belong? Is there any mid-course correction which you need to make? As this year comes to an end, stop and take stock of where you are. Take a compass bearing to see if you're headed in the right direction. Are you in alignment with God in your life or are you following your own agenda? Are you determined to be fruitful in the kingdom? Do you want to receive a reward on that day? Just how intentional are you about your Christian walk and experience? We've spent most of this year looking at the intentionality, the purposefulness of God towards us and ours towards Him. From that should have come some decisions that define us and by that I mean we'll have made some choices that we are determined to follow through. There is no continued breakthrough without follow-through. For example, how about deciding to be consumed with the majesty of heaven, the majesty and sovereignty of God, instead of being obsessed by the work of the enemy? That would be a good decision to make. You should not be entering a new year in the same place you entered the last one if you are tracking with the teaching. There are times when we just have to take responsibility for what we are not and determine to come into what God says we can be. Personality and persona. Our personality is us in the natural. Our persona is who we are in Christ. How we stand before the Father. And it's in our persona that the anointing is released. (coughs) Excuse me. God never but never anoints flesh. He only anoints that which you can see of his son in you. To come into all that he says we are will mean choices, determination and grit. We will need to stand firm and not back down on our choices when the going gets tough, as it will. We will need to develop both stamina and perseverance to finish the race. Remember it's not how you start that matters but how you finish and there are no shortcuts. And beloved all this has a purpose. The purpose is that you might be equipped to rule and reign not only over your own personal circumstances in this world which is your inheritance here but in the age to come. The decisions you make now will define and determine your future for eternity. You do not want to go into eternity with a pea-sized soul. There we are then, the decision is yours. Will you pay the price for relational maturity this year? Will you live in 1 Corinthians 13, to 13? nothing. Love is patient, kind, doesn't envy, doesn't boast, it's not proud, doesn't dishonour others, is not self-seeking, it's not easily angered, keeps no record of wrongs, doesn't delight in evil but rejoices with the truth. It always protects, always trusts, always hopes, When I became a man, I put the ways of childhood behind me. For now we see only a reflection as in a mirror. Then we shall see face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I am known. And now these three remain, faith, hope and love. But the greatest of these is love. To finish then, let's remind ourselves about Amy Carmichael's poem If. If I belittle those whom I am called to serve, talk of their weak points in contrast perhaps with what I think of as my strong points, if I develop a superior attitude, forgetting who made thee to differ, and what hast thou which thou hast not received, then I know nothing of Calvary love. If I find myself taking lapses for granted, oh, that's what they always do, oh, of course she always talks like that, he acts like that, then I know nothing of Calvary love. If I can enjoy a joke at the expense of another, if I can in any way slight another in conversation or even in thought, then I know nothing of Calvary love. If I can write an unkind letter, speak an unkind word, think an unkind thought without grief and shame, then I know nothing of Calvary love. If I do not feel far more for the grieved Saviour than for my worried self when troublesome things occur, then I know nothing of Calvary love. If I can rebuke without a pang, then I know nothing of Calvary love. If my attitude be one of fear, not faith, about one who's disappointed me, if I say just what I expected, if a fall occurs, then I know nothing of Calvary love. If I'm afraid to speak the truth, lest I lose affection, or lest the one concerned should say, you do not understand, or because I fear to lose my reputation for kindness, if I put my own name before the other's highest good, then I know nothing of Calvary love. If I am content to heal a hurt slightly saying peace peace where there is no peace. If I forget the poignant word let love be without dissimulation and blunt the edge of truth speaking not right things but smooth things then I know nothing of Calvary love. If I hold on to choices of any kind just because they are my choice then I know nothing of Calvary love. If I am soft to myself and slide comfortably into self-pity and self-sympathy. If I do not, by the grace of God, practice fortitude, then I know nothing of Calvary love. If I myself dominate myself, if my thoughts revolve around myself, if I am so occupied with myself, I rarely have a heart at leisure from itself, then I know nothing of Calvary love. If the moment I am conscious of the shadow of self crushing, crushing, crossing my threshold, I do not shut the door and keep that door shut, then I know nothing of Calvary love. If I cannot, in honest happiness, take the second place or the twentieth, if I cannot take the first without making a fuss about my unworthiness, then I know nothing of Calvary love. If I take offence easily, if I'm content to continue in a cool unfriendliness, though friendship be possible, then I know nothing of Calvary love. If I feel injured when another lays to my charge things that I know not, forgetting that my sinless Saviour trod this path to the end, then I know nothing of Calvary love. If I feel bitter towards those who condemn me, as it seems to me unjustly, forgetting that if they knew me as I know myself they would contend me much more than I know nothing of Calvary love. If If souls can suffer alongside and I hardly know it because the spirit of discernment is not in me then I know nothing of Calvary love. If the praise of others elates me and their blame depresses me, if I cannot rest under misunderstanding without defending myself, If I love to be loved more than to love, to be served more than to serve, then I know nothing of Calvary love. If I crave hungrily to be used to show the way of liberty to a soul in bondage, instead of caring only that it be delivered. If I nurse my disappointment when I fail, instead of asking that to another the word of release may be given, then I know nothing of Calvary love if I do not forget about such a trifle as personal success so that it never crosses my mind, or if it does it is never given room there, if the cup of flattery tastes sweet to me then I know nothing of Calvary love. If in the fellowship of service I seek to attach a friend to myself so that others are caused to feel unwanted, if my friendships do not draw others deep in but are ungenerous to myself for myself, then I know nothing of Calvary love. If I refuse to allow one who is dear to me to suffer for the sake of Christ, if I do not see such suffering as the greatest honor that can be offered to any follower of the crucified, then I know nothing of Calvary love. If I slip into the place that can be filled by Christ alone, making myself the first necessity to a soul instead of leading it to fasten upon Him, then I know nothing of Calvary love. If my interest in the work of others is cool, if I think of my own in terms of special, if the burdens of others are not my burdens too, and their joys mine, then I know nothing of Calvary love. If I wonder why something is trying is allowed and press for prayer that it may be removed. If I cannot be trusted with any disappointment and cannot go in peace under any mystery, then I know nothing of Calvary love. If the ultimate, the hardest, cannot be asked of me, if my fellows hesitate to ask it and turn to someone else, then I know nothing of Calvary love. If I covered any place on earth but the dust at the foot of the cross then I know nothing of Calvary love. That which I know not, teach thou me, O Lord my God. There's no place in the church for crossless Christianity. Let's echo Amy's prayer for 2011. Next month we will look at the things that determine gain or loss as we look at inheritance and personal responsibility and learn a few lessons from those who have gone before us who traded their inheritance for something so much less. God bless you. Thank you for listening. See you in the new year. And don't forget to visit our upgraded website www.psalm131.com There's a lot of things coming up in the new year. God bless you. Amen.